always depended on the kindness of strangers. All right, so he's not a regular rat or, or even a super rat. He's a scared little mouse, that's all. Welcome to the Real Woman Podcast, a podcast focused on all things cinematic. My guest today is Nate Duell. Hi, Nate. Hello. Uh, and Nate, you uh, are were a film teacher in high school for twelve years. Is that correct? Twelve years. I taught uh, English and uh, and a little film literature and uh, history. And that was at uh, Goshen High School in Indiana. That's correct. Uh, and now you are at Tabor College in Kansas? Tabor, Tabor College in Hillsboro, Kansas. Time for the Hillsboro. Okay. Um, so the four, the, the four movies we're going to talk about today come from two directors. The first director is Billy Wilder, and his two movies are two of my all-time favorite movies, uh, The Apartment and Some Like It Hot. Uh, and the other director is Ernst Lubitsch, and his two films are two of your favorite films, The Shop Around the Corner and Ninochka. So uh, let's start with Ninochka. Uh, sure. Ninochka is 1939, and which happens to be cons- 1939 is considered one of the greatest years of film. Um, and Greta Garbo plays a like a stern Soviet woman who is sent to Paris to essentially clean up the mess that her four uh, or three colleagues have created. They were sent there to sell jewels uh, that had that the that the USSR had basically repossessed repossessed from the royals and. And the the three supporting characters, who, by the way, kind of reminded me of the Marx Brothers. Yeah. There's a very Marx Brothers thing about them. Um, and there's, a, there's a definite flapstick quality to their well, and, and even um, I think it's Bulyanov, that character even looks a little like Groucho Marx. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, and and so she, they they foul up the, the the sale of the jewels, and she comes in to clean up their mess, and she encounters the wonderful Melvin Douglas, who, uh, for people who don't know, is the grandfather of actress Ileana Douglas. Uh, uh, but so why is um, Nonochka, your favorite film. What are your favorite films? It is one of my favorite films. And uh, with that unbelievable year of 1939, I think it gets lost, uh, you know, with Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, uh, and, uh, and some of the others that were, you know, such huge, huge successes. Uh, but there was a cultural element to Nonochka that uh, probably is, one of the things that doesn't age with the film, and that is Garbo herself, her performance was 
so uncharacteristic. At least the second half of it was. Yes. Uh, the beginning of the film, that she is this, you know, sourpuss and straight face. That's the garbo that everyone knew from all the the melodramas and even into the silent films. That, you know, she could play. You know, Camille, uh, right? Yeah, Camille. Yeah, and she could play the the woman who had been scorned or left behind, and you know, the the just the uber drama. Yes. of those roles, and that was Carbo. Uh, and so the, there was, in fact, the movie was advertised um, as this momentous occasion, and it said Garbo laughs. That was on the, the movie card. Yeah, Garbo that was laughs. the tagline, Garbo laughs. Yeah, and, and it, was, uh, it, it was so significant because it was just so out of character for her. Right. And so I think there's that cultural element uh, that maybe is lost, on, on the contemporary viewer with that film. And I am I'm such a huge Garbo fan. Uh, you that, know, and, uh, I, that, and I was, te- we were, we were talking earlier and I was saying, I'm really not a Garbo fan. I, I recognize, you know, I, I, did anyone ever have better bone structure than Garbo? Probably not. She was certainly <laughs> highly photogenic, but as an, as an actor, I don't know. I guess I just didn't feel like like she works definitely as that stern, you know, or that melodramatic uh, yeah. character. Um, but I don't know. There's a I, for me personally. There's a there's a coldness about her that just doesn't it it, it doesn't translate to me really well. Yeah, and I would agree with that, and I think that was part of her mystique. Uh, you think about her role in Grand Hotel, where yes. she says, "I just want to be left alone." Right. Uh, that is just so. That is uh, so typical of what we come to expect from her. And I think what I, what appeals to me, aside from you know just her her physical beauty, um, but her her ability to use that. There are lots of beautiful women. Uh, in the world and certainly in Hollywood that, you know, that's almost, you know, right. a requirement. Right. Um, but she was able to use that as almost a part of her acting method. Uh, I, I feel like she was one of those uh, few silent film actors who were able to carry over into the sound era because uh, they used their body and you really felt you really felt her sadness and her uh, whatever those those sort of melodramatic emotions and feelings were in those movies. And I don't think you necessarily got that from every actor of the time. I think it's well before method acting. Yes. Uh, and I think it was just a natural gift uh, to use what she had. And, and, and I would agree with you. She, she for a long time, was a one-trick pony in that regard. Yeah. Uh, but she did it so well. Yes. Uh, and, you know, certainly for her time period, I think she was, was quite, it was quite unusual to have somebody that was that good at it. But, well, and I think, uh, I, and I will give her this, that she's, I, I feel like she's an early, um, even though I would say that I feel like Tilda Swinton is, is actually a better actress, I feel like there's a through line that could be drawn from Greta Garbo to Tilda Swinton, that there's, she was sort of an early kind of androgynous 
looking yes. woman, sure. you know, um, and she and she used that definitely, uh, you know, as opposed to Marlena Dietrich had it a little bit, you know, and she certainly did, you know, she would wear suits in movies like Morocco and um, mm-hmm. but but there was a more there was something a bit more sultry, I would say, about Marlena Dietrich. Oh. Those eyes, yes. <laughs> those eyes. Um, and if you were, and if you came from the the silent era, you better be able to use your eyes. Yes. You better be able to use your body. Yes. Um, and that was so. She carried that on for sure. Yes. Yes. No. She definitely um, used what she had. I I think that um, the the scene the the scene where she laughs. Uh, is actually, it's good. I like it. It's a good scene. And she really does seem to be laughing. I mean, it is, you know, yeah. it doesn't seem fake or put on. I mean, it does seem like she really that- is laughing. But how funny to think that your image is so that people have never seen you laugh. Right. And, <laughs> and I think it was, you talked about it looking so genuine and so natural. And you know, to further look into the Garbo mystique, it wasn't just on camera, but she was well known, you know, off camera to uh, not want to be in the limelight, to right. not smile a lot. And, you know, even when she was the paparazzi or whatever, what have you at the time, uh, she just wasn't sort of a, a gregarious and outgoing and charismatic person. Yeah, uh, so I, I yeah, just it, watched it. It was a, a real momentous occasion. And I, you know, I just watched a documentary on uh, Cecil Beaton, who did the um, costuming. He was a portrait photographer and costuming for My Fair Lady and and uh, mm-hmm. Gigi. And he recounted, Greta Garbo was many claimed the love of his life, despite the fact that he was actually a gay man, that he had Mm. actually asked her to marry him and he really loved her. But she got furious with him because he had asked many times to take her picture and she didn't want to do it and didn't want to do it and finally relented. And she basically gave him strict instructions to only use one photo. And, (laughs) but she said it kind of too late in the game. And by the time the the piece came out it was many pictures that they had used and it was that same thing of like not wanting to be you know oversaturating uh, you know the, the the fan magazines and the life magazine you know not wanting her image out there so much and wanting to really right. control that and she was furious at him for <clears throat> like almost a year or something i mean she like just didn't talk to him uh, because of that. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I have a feeling as we talk about these movies, that concept is going to sneak into all of our conversations yes. because here, here's a woman in a time of a, a massive patriarchy of Hollywood uh, who's trying to have more control over, you know, her own rights as an actor, as a, as a model and what have you. Right. Um, and, and not having a lot of success at it because of the time period, but she became such a star that she was able to have a little bit of control. But even in that control, uh, 
she wasn't considered, oh, here's the woman who, you know, savvy businesswoman who's controlling her own stuff. It was, right. she's an eccentric. She's eccentric or yes. she's hard to work with. Right. Or, right. you know, which something is, like that. Which has sadly not really changed <laughs> in all of these years. Um, no. But, uh, but no, I think Nanochka is definitely an important film in many respects, one of them being it was co-written by Billy Wilder. Correct. So we and have, I think that's, you know, Lubitsch and Wilder working together is very interesting. Yeah. And, and Wilder often talked of uh, the Lubitsch effect. And had a sign over his in his office that said, "How what would or how would Lubitsch do it?" What right, Lubitsch the Lubitsch do? touch. He had a WWJD bracelet back <laughs> right. in the day. Uh, right, He was his mentor, and there are I think if you look at the film, uh, there are a lot of similarities, but at the same time, you can also see uh, each director's own personal touch, uh, given the time and also. Uh, an environment they made their films, and then uh, the era that their films were made. Obviously, Wilder uh, worked much later uh, into the 20th century than Lubitsch did. Well, I feel like Wilder tended to, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, f I have a sense of Wilder's films as being more rooted in a reality that we recognize. Like, Lubitsch's sure. films were, you know, either set in Budapest or Paris, mm -hmm. and sort of this fantasy world in a way. Even though he did deal with politics, Nanochka definitely deals with politics of USSR. And, um, but there's, there's a sort of fairy tale quality to Lubitsch's yes. films that uh, yeah, I don't think Wilder has. It's a his or a, well, they feel European. They feel European. I think yes. Lubitsch's film, right. whereas Wilder's films may have a European feel, but are definitely American films. At least his uh, the bulk of his uh, uh, work in in Hollywood. Yes, yes, I would I, I definitely. I think, uh, I think you hit on something that. I appreciate about Ninochka, and it may be me. Um, I, I, I love, uh, first of all, I, I, I love, one of the things I love teaching was teaching genre and studying films in a genre. Mm -hmm. I think especially for young, for young students, younger, you know, high school age, teenage students, when you establish and give them an understanding of genre, they can watch films with so much more uh, uh, insight they're watching for certain things instead of just, you know, images on the screen and trying to follow the plot. When they have a sense of, of the genre of a film, uh, that is the first step to really being able to have a better understanding and appreciation of the film. And for me, all of these films, and frankly, uh, Lubitsch and uh, Wilder fall into what uh, Wes Gehring, who's a, uh, a film professor yes. at Ball State University, yes. and has written uh, written extensively on film, and, and uh, uh, you may have seen him on uh, TCM, I think he does things. He calls, I think they fall to what he calls screwball comedy. Right. Uh, and his definition is the boy meets girl formula turned upside down. Right. And uh, so, so I think that's really true. And so if, keeping that in mind, I think you're also looking at these are uh, 
these are comedies that are that also have a little bit of parody in them. And certainly Ninochka is parodying the communist lifestyle. Yes. It's parodying yes. What, what they find is ridiculous about um, you know, the, the Soviet lifestyle. Uh, and and I think because I'm a history buff, because uh, I have taught genre and I can see that, I love that aspect of it. And, and that is something that often I think is done subtly by Lubitsch, yes. that parody. Uh, yes. And so if, if you don't have a concept, of, again, of the time, of the place, you can miss that for sure. Right, right. Um, no, definitely. I, and I even think that he... In a way, you know, when when Nanochka buys that hat, it is a silly hat. I mean, in a way, mm-hmm. he 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 both parodies the the communism the Soviets, but he also pokes a little fun at the French too, at the West. Yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> this is this is sort of the the a symbol of freedom and civilization is to wear this silly little hat that she yeah. wears and and it's to a, it's equal opportunity mocker yes you know yes the, the oversimplicity and ridiculousness of of communist living and the and the pretentiousness of uh, upscale living of of the French or or what or even just the wealthy of the time. Right, right. No, it, definitely. And 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 the fact that you know when she goes when she and uh, Melvin Douglas go to the Eiffel Tower, and he basically doesn't know anything about it. You know, he <laughs> lives in the city, but he doesn't. You know, she wants to know how tall it is or all the like st- stats of it. It's like this very clinical. Uh, information that she wants, data that he doesn't have, and and it's almost it's almost like the pendulum sw- swings too far in both directions. Yeah, you know, sure. she's far which too is, statistical. Which is a, which is a uh, characteristic of parody a little bit, and parody that gets away from itself. That's where it can get it, you know, sort of ridiculous a right, little bit. Right. But yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, so, you know, Nanochka is definitely. Um, it's interesting because it's very different from the other his other film. Uh, we're going to talk about the shop around the corner. Mm-hmm. They're 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 in a way very different movies, but what they have in common, they're both set in Europe, in a, you know, a foreign land. Um, and they both sort of have a kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't, it's not parody, but, but, but a, a, I want to say a fairy tale, but not, but not like a, not necessarily a nice fairy tale, you know? Sure. Uh, don't uh, you, don't you think that, you know, in looking at these films, you can, sort of the nexus of what we call a rom-com today. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, this is this is where it came from because this, you know, this these little comedies, these boy meets girls, boy meets girl all turned upside down. Yeah. The, the screwball comedy, because it's parodying the sort of romance films. Right. Uh, and not necessarily in a uh, we say parody. It's not like uh, you know, 
the a parody that we might think of an airplane type parody. Right, right. Uh, it's much it's more much, subtle than yes, that. Yes, yes. And it, you know, it's because of that, and because of the way these two directors, who also wrote a lot, handle these the romantic situations at the heart of all these films. Uh, it is sort of, I think, the beginning of, of the rom-com that we know now. Now, oh, the rom-coms we see today are so, I mean, they're so... Uh, Bad. You know, <laughs> generic, almost. Yes. And, you know, here it is. Here's what you do in Act 1, here's what you do in Act 2, here's what you do in Act 3. Right. Uh, but to me, that's the difference of having skilled writers and filmmakers like Lubitsch and Wilder uh, I think there you can still have a really good rom-com today. I think they're out there. Uh, previously, when you and I have talked, we've talked about you know Nora Ephron and some of right. uh, her films. And she remade The Shop is. Around the Corner as You've Got Mail. Exactly. Uh, yep. So right yeah. there. Um, which I actually think is cute. As, as, as contemporary rom-coms go, it is cute. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely... It is. Pref- it is. But I prefer... I prefer the original, but I more I think for its artistry than for um, how. And this is interesting. You know, we were talking about how in Nanochka, Greta Garbo kind of plays against type. At least in the second half of the movie, she's sort of a light, airy, in love character. Well, in the shop around the corner. Jimmy Stewart, in a way, plays against type because he kind of does. Yeah, he he sort of was always seen as kind of like the aw shucks, you know, every guy right. who wouldn't hurt a fly. I mean, he's Mr. Smith goes to Washington, right? He's right. He's he's everything that's he's good. George Bailey. He's George <laughs> Bailey, exactly. Sure. Um, but in the shop around the corner, he's kind of a sad sack. You know, he's kind, he's kind of depressed for much of the film. Uh, and just a brief synopsis, uh, Jimmy Stewart, Ma- uh, Maureen O'Sullivan work at a, at a store in Budapest this time, and they do not like each other, do not get along, are always picking at each other, and actually it gets very nasty. They're really very equally nasty to each other. But unbeknownst to them, they are, they've become pen pals outside of work. And the letters that they write to each other causes them to, to fall in love with each other, you know, in, a, in, a, in an epistolary form, uh, while they actually dislike each other, in, you know, in real life. And so at some point, he finds out, uh, uh, that she is, she's the pen pal. He finds out before she does. And he, not only does he not tell her, but he strings her along in, a, in an almost cruel way. Uh, There's a little mean-spiritedness. It, it, there yeah. definitely is mean-spiritedness in a, in, in a petty kind of, you did this to me, so I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to let you think, you know what you think or what, you know. And so when he finally does tell her after a very long, excruciatingly long uh, moment of drawing it out, uh, she smiles. 
She's happy. And my reaction was, well, F you. I mean, I really felt like (laughs) if that had been me, I would have been furious. I would have said, how, you know, how long have you known? How did you find out? And why did you not tell me? You know, why would you let, I mean, I would have, I probably would have given him the third degree. Uh, Sure. And and, and And, I'm not even saying I wouldn't have ended up with him. I might have stayed with him, but I would have definitely, there would have been an argument. Let him have it first. Yes. I think there are two things. There are two things uh, that that I uh, kind of take away from this. One, well, I guess three things that I can bring. One, this movie has almost become uh, uh, almost holiday uh, holiday special anymore. Oh uh, yeah, it's a Christmas movie. It's set in the Christmas, and I know many many people. uh, Who this is their Christmas Eve movie that they watch. Right. Um, so there's something there's something that happens when uh, to a film when when it becomes when it falls into a niche like that. <laughs> I think it changes the way it's watched. But yes. uh, on, uh, I would say the second thing I pick up is here's another screwball comedy. It's a boy meets girl, but there's a wrinkle to it, um, and and it's not. See, I think the difference between these and, and the screwball comedies and the rom coms. The rom-com has what we call the meet-cute, right? Mm-hmm. The meet-cute. It's always some sort of way to meet. Right. That's, it's, it's not typically a topsy-turvy, upside-down thing. It's not someone you hate that you've been writing letters to. Right. It, you bump into somebody. You see them across the room. It's something like that. Right. Uh, so here we, here we are again with that element of, of screwball comedy. And then the last thing that sticks out to me uh, is how you, as a 21st century woman, uh, watches a film like this. Again, here's almost a metaphor. A man has all the power. Yes. And the woman, you know, he has what she wants, and he can do whatever he wants to her because that's the only way she can get it. Uh, and I think maybe that's, that's your reaction to it right there. It's not cute as maybe it would have been perceived in the 40s. It's not... Um, it's not, oh, isn't this charming? He's giving her a hard time. He's teasing her. He really likes, you know. Right, right. Uh, there's, a li- there's, a, there's a little bit of this with Jimmy Stewart. Uh, I'm thinking about It's a Wonderful Life when he has uh, Donna Reed's robe. And yes. it's come off and she's stuck in the tree. Yes. And he's like, oh, it's an interesting situation we have here. <laughs> yes. and he, but, but, that, but even in that movie, it's, you know, Frank Capper does it in a much more light sort of, uh, this is funny. And they're supposed uh, to be not, kids. I mean, they're kind of like college kids. Yes, so, not a mean-spirited No, and it element. sort of feels so, yeah. like age-appropriate chicanery, sure. you know? Meanwhile, yes, these two absolutely. are grown-ups. He's a grown man right. acting this way. Uh, and and I just, yeah, it's not, it's not Jimmy Stewart at his finest in terms of being right. morally, morally on the side of right. Um, right. You know, I, I, so I, you know, that, that begs the question. Uh, and I think any film historian faces this reality, uh, whether it's, uh, a, a racial stereotypes, you know, the Mickey Rooney, the classic Mickey Rooney and breakfast at Tiffany's right. debacle or gender roles or 
or, or just general, you know, uh, social climate, when you're looking at old films, it, it's really difficult to apply contemporary mores to an older film. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't stick out. That doesn't mean we shouldn't recognize, wow, this is exactly what, when, you know, these women are, are, are doing their acceptance speeches at the Golden Globes or talking about shifting of power. That's what they're talking about. Right, right, right. It's now, not does always... It ru- does it ruin the movie? Of course not. It doesn't ruin the movie at all. It's, it's still a wonderful little movie. But it does, it sh- and it should give us pause as a contemporary audience watching it. I agree. I agree. And I do, and I do really enjoy the film there. And I wouldn't, it's interesting because in a way it's hard for me to put it in a genre because it's, it's like you could put it in rom-com, but it's not really romantic, you know? And, and there are, and while there are, funny moments it's not really a comedy and right. and screwball like when i think of screwball i think of like carol lombard you know i feel i think sure. of it like, happened one night yeah right. absolutely but you know and a few more pratfalls and a little bit more mm-hmm. physical comedy and and yeah. straight up one liners you know and right. this film doesn't really do that either and so right you know it's right. it's interesting when you talk about teaching kids about genre is when you know the rules of a genre you can identify when they're being broken or when they're exactly. being exactly. when they're being changed or thwarted in yeah. some way and, and I, I will tell you what uh, from teaching kids that's a hard thing but as a teacher when you see your students making those connections you know you've hit something. You know right. you've done something right. Because right. that is that does take a sophisticated eye. But you're right that if you don't know the rules of the genre to begin with, you can't tell that. So you're exactly right. Uh, yeah, and so it's, it's with a movie like The Shop Around the Corner, and even, you know, I know that it's sort of become a Christmas movie, but even that, it's not like uh, The Bishop's Wife or... Sure. You know, Miracle on 34th Street, where really the right. theme or the plot, is, you know, is, you know, around, focused yeah. on Christmas. It's like Christmas right. kind right. of happens to be going on. This movie doesn't, yeah. this movie could take place in any season. It doesn't right. have to I be mean, Christmas. It's, it's the diehard of 40s movies. Is it a Christmas movie just because it's during Christmas? Right, right. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's definitely the diehard, yes. <laughs> yes. You know, I think that what you're talking about with with uh, how it doesn't quite fit in that screwball comedy, I think you're right, but the, I think the next movie we're going to talk about could not be more in the screwball comedy genre. Yes, I would agree. And I feel like, <laughs> And I feel like that's a difference between Billy Wilder and Lubitsch is Lubitsch yes. definitely uh, went more for the subtle subtlety yes. and and sort of um, uh, mixing of genres, you know, changing genre uh, rules. Mm-hmm. Whereas Billy Wilder was 
uh, and they were masters in both. I'm not saying one is better than the other. It's just the, the approach that they took. Billy Wilder was a little bit more straightforward. Yes, the gloves come off. Yes, he is a bit more straightforward. He was much more, you know, and there's subtlety there. There's definitely, I can yeah, see. Let's, let's just say what. Let's just say what it is. Some like it hot. Sexual, sexually, <laughs> yeah. Some like it hot. But Will, Billy Wilder, um, he was, you know, we might today we might say this is a dirty old man with his with his dirty jokes that he wrote into things. Um, but the reality was he was working in, in, you know, a changing Hollywood environment where they certainly, we weren't into the sixties yet where things really started to change right. and what that was acceptable. Right. He right. was still working in some pretty strict, uh, era of MPAA. Uh, and so his subtlety was definitely, uh, was definitely a little more sexual in nature, especially, uh, in the film, some like it hot. Well, and you, and you, I mean, just look at Greta Garbo versus Marilyn Monroe. I mean, sure. that's you know, Garbo is definitely there's no there's no uh, there's no androgyny no. in Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> no. She was all woman. Yes, yes, from her toes to her hair, she was definitely yes. There's no and, there's... and as much as Garbo was a quote-unquote, sex symbol, although I don't think it had the same uh, cachet that, that I think Monroe changed. She broke the what that means to be a sex symbol. Garbo certainly was it was sexy, but Monroe... <laughs> well, you know, Garbo I mean, was sexy, Monroe was sex. Yeah, that's perfect. That's the perfect way to say it. Yeah. It's, it's how I would... You know, is how I see it. Uh, there was no subtlety with Marilyn in that sense, and certainly not in uh, Some Like It Hot. So let's move into Some Like It Hot. This is uh, 1959, 58? Um, 59, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's... It's one of my all-time favorite movies, I have to say. I absolutely love this movie. And it's Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, who... Jack Lemmon just cracks me up always. Um, oh, gosh. And uh, so, yeah, 1915... Actually, 1959 was Some Like It Hot. 59. Um, yeah. and, and they play... Uh, Musicians in a band. He he plays the bow fiddle, which every time he <laughs> says bow fiddle makes me laugh. Bow fiddle, yeah. Bow yeah. fiddle. Uh, Jack Lemmon's character plays the bow fiddle. Tony Curtis plays um, the oh gosh, what is he like the trumpet or something? And saxophone. Saxophone, yeah. yeah. And and uh, uh, they witness. A, a mob hit, which is reminiscent yeah, of the. I think, the, I think it's, you're meant to. You're given to understand it's the Saint Valentine's Day massacre. Yes, yes, it's definitely Chicago, a, a Capone yeah. type of thing. It is set in 1929. Right. They witness this, and uh, in a in a desperate attempt to flee, they they. Uh, become, they cross-dress, they dress up as women <laughs> and join an all-girls band going to Florida. And 
And it was because of the cross-dressing, I might add, that this movie was released by United Artists without the production code seal of approval and was banned in Kansas. In Kansas, of course it was, of course. (laughs) It played just about everywhere else, but it was banned in Kansas because of the cross-dressing. I did. I did not know that. I said uh, that it had some, uh, uh, you know, controversy around it. But even with the controversy, and maybe because of it to a certain degree, this was incredibly successful and popular movie. And you know, I think there's a little bit of magic that goes into this movie. Oh, Billy definitely. Wilder's magic. Only Wilder could do this really? without people. Just Freaking out. And can you imagine if Frank Capra tried to make a, <laughs> this movie? Or, you know, people would just go crazy. But yes. Wilder could do it. Uh, and, the, and the casting is perfect because you know, Jack Lemon and Lemon and Wilder had such a fruitful relationship throughout the years. Yes. Uh, he was sort of his go to guy, and, and Jack Lemon was one of the most talented uh, actors. You know, Hollywood's ever seen, uh, and Tony Curtis plays the role so well, and and of course Marilyn Monroe, and it's almost as though even though you have these two men dressed as women, when they share a scene with Marilyn Monroe, there are two men dressed as women on the screen. <laughs> she just she's so much that you know uh, that it, it it distracts or it, it takes away from them, and, and somehow. Cross-dressing men become just this, this secondary effect, yes. uh, like a necessary plot point, as opposed to being some, you know, scandalous, you know, right. depiction. Right, and and you know, I thought of this the last time I saw. I've seen it so many times, and it's it's one of those movies that every time I see it, something else sticks out for me, and this time it was her name. The fact that not yeah. only is her name Sugar, <laughs> which just seems appropriate, yep. but her last name is Kowalczyk, which to me, <laughs> which to me, I don't know why, and I'm sure this is completely, I'm sure I've pulled this out of the air, but it reminded me of Stanley Kowalski. Sure. I don't, I don't think, knowing Wilder, I'm guessing that wasn't an accident. I just thought because if there was, if there, if there is a male equivalent to the sex that is Marilyn Monroe, it is Brando. <laughs> it is, it is especially Brando in that role. Yes, uh, in the streetcar named Desire. You know, yes, yeah. So he is. He's this damaged, you know, yet hunky, you know, sexual creature, and Monroe. Did any play? Did anyone play a damaged play damaged better than her? Right, and she's you know? damaged in this movie, but but her first name is Sugar, so she's a little sweeter. She's not. She doesn't <laughs> yeah. have. You know, she's not sure. going to yell the way the, that Kowalski is. He's she's not abusive right. the way he is, but exactly. but she's definitely damaged and but yet sexy. she always gets the fuzzy end of the lollipop she always right? gets the fuzzy but, end of the lollipop and, and so it's like she here she is someone who has had bad luck with men had bad luck with her career nothing seems to go right for her uh and but her instead of saying i'm bitter i'm angry 
You know, I could have been somebody. Right, uh, right. She says, I, I always get the fuzzy end of the lollipop. Yes. So, yeah, I think that the, the name uh, and her portrayal and how Wilder uh, uh, writes her and, and films her in this movie uh, takes the edge off of what would be really kind of a sad life. If oh, we yeah. just saw Sugar Kowalski, you know, if it was just a biopic of Sugar Kowalski, we'd be sad. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm always interested to hear or to learn who, what other actors or actresses were considered for, for roles because you think some like it hot who else could be in that movie except for Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, and Marilyn Monroe? Like, there's no one else that could do those parts. But apparently, right. um, Mitzi Gaynor was actually going to do the Marilyn Monroe part. Wow. It was going to be Mitzi Gaynor, and it only went to Marilyn Monroe because it was like she... Um, she got out of a contract, got out of a commitment. She became free. And so Wilder grabbed her. Nudge, nudge. Um, uh, so he, 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 he cast her. But the studio had initially wanted Danny Kaye and Bob Hope. Wow. Almost, a, almost like a, a Crosby and Hope road picture. Type yes. Thing. Oh, goodness. Yes. Could, now, could you imagine Bob Hope dressed up as a woman? No one would believe that. I mean, oh, I mean, Tony Curtis. Maybe, maybe if he's doing sketch comedy, right? But not in a film. No, I mean Tony Curtis is actually—it's like he's pretty enough as a man <laughs> that he makes a pretty girl. He makes—it's not a—he's yeah. I mean, not great, but you can. You could you could see why people would believe that he was a woman, and Jack Lemmon sure. as well. They made the transition. Well, but I but I do think there's a uh, there's a distinction. Curtis is pretty. He's the prettier of the two as a man. He's certainly the prettier of the, of the two as a woman. You know, right. Lemon is yes. not tall, and strapping, and and, and so, But I think what's what's funny, uh, what what is a funny layer. Is Lemon is the one who finds a suitor as a woman, <laughs> yes. and Curtis doesn't. Yes, yes. Well, Curtis and, and gets Joey, that little Joey bell Brown. Hop. Curtis gets the bell Joey hop. Brown. Joey Brown is fabulous, and I have to say, I thought it was very interesting watching it this time around. I was really focused on uh, the dialogue and how they treated the the cross dressing and. When, when Jack Lemon, that whole scene, which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, um, mm-hmm. when Jack Lemon tells Tony Curtis that he's engaged to, and he's going to marry, marry Joey Brown, uh, <laughs> his character, Osgood, he's going to marry Osgood, Tony Curtis's uh, uh, response, Josephine, as his character, Josephine and Daphne, his response is not, you can't do that because, like it wasn't even really a homophobic response. It's more, why would you want to? It's not, that's bad, that's wrong, you can't do that, that's a a whatever. It's more, why would a man want to marry a man? Like, not, <laughs> not, not you can't, not you shouldn't. 
not that's not done just why would you want to and i just i, I it's subtle but i feel like that is important you know that he that he came at it from that angle and what's his response security Security. There are so many wonderful one-liners. You know, in, in, uh, um, but I just love the way that they, that it's handled. Uh, you know, they don't, no, they don't look at it like this is, you know, something terrible or awful. It's more, it just isn't going to work out. Like, why would you want to do that? You know, um, I feel like if, I just felt like if Jack Lemmon's character had actually been gay, I don't think Tony Curtis would have been against him marrying Osgood. His his well, his issues you know, were more. Well, what are you gonna do? Like you don't want to be with. What are you gonna do on your honeymoon? You know. Right. Well, I think there are two things that that uh, softened the blow, if you will, or or made the cross dressing uh, not a non issue. Uh, for for people outside of Kansas, uh, right. <laughs> I think one it was born out of necessity from something that vast majority of people would probably consider more evil, and that is getting away from the mafia. Right, right. Uh, and so it wasn't like they wanted to do it; they were escaping from the mafia. Right, right. Uh, and I and I think the second is. So that's a plot, a kind of a plot point that makes it okay. Although, second, although before that massacre actually happens, because remember they're looking for work, they're out of job, they're out of work. Yeah. It's the winter in Chicago; it's cold, but, and and Jack so Lemon was actually, chance. but Jack Lemon actually is up for doing it before the massacre they go into that office and it's like oh it's a oh, girl's right. band yeah, and right. jack is like come on we can do this let's just put on a wig and whatever <laughs> like we wore hula skirts at some they had worn hula skirts at some performance like they've jack lemon was kind of all for it before the ga- the the mafia yeah. hit and, and so and so maybe a viewer that's trying to read into it too much might suggest that oh maybe there's there weapon has some homosexual tendencies, but I think the reality is it was the depression. Yes, and, and he wanted his, he needed his work. answer of security, his his reasoning behind taking that job, his answer about security, that's born out of you know people struggling through the depression more than any you know suggestion of, of homoeroticism. Right. No, his plan is. Get married. Shortly after they're married, tell him he's a guy. Get a divorce and get a nice settlement. I mean, that's it's, that's the American dream, right exactly, there. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I think the the other reason uh, it was uh, it was acceptable is really how Wilder handled it and how the actors handled it. Again, it wasn't. There was nothing. Uh, there was no sexuality. Uh, involved with the cross-dressing. Right. It was right. handled in a way that it, it was comedic. Uh, it, it very similar to Dustin Hoffman in Tootsie. Right, right. Uh, it, it was a comedic element. It wasn't a comedic element born in necessity. It wasn't uh, a, a question in the mind of the character. 
am I, do I like this? Right, right. There was never that. And not only that, but when they do um, dress as women, they actually, and they talk about it, you know, they get they get their butt pinched. Men start treating them the way men treat women. And it yeah. sort of bring, has an epiphany. They're, you know, it gives them an epiphany or they have an epiphany. And it's it's sort of, you know, they have this realization of how they have treated women, you know. And it's sort of a, yeah, it becomes a learning experience for them. Oh, now we know how the other half lives yeah and, and here we are back at the vein that we that we kind of defined as going to be in all of these films is that uh here's another example of shining a spotlight on the disequality or inequality uh between men and women at the time uh and i think that can be applied even to monroe's character who was the lead singer she was the showstopper yet she had no there was nothing involved with that uh and even uh with the the oh sugar what is her name no sweet sue or uh, yes. the leader the, yeah yeah you know obviously she was the brains of the organization she was the one who ran the show but she couldn't make the decisions it had to go through uh beanstalk, uh, what, beanstalk. <laughs> yes yes and who so, was who's uh, a short so tubby again. little character it's kind of, <laughs> i mean that's another sort of sarcastic short tubby little character is named beanstalk <laughs> and so you here we go again with, uh, and and maybe this is us looking at it now uh again in the in the 21st century but i think it's uh not surprising uh, from Wilder with his other, you know, many of his other films to look at, you know, how women are treated or what the uh, woman's role is, whether it's in entertainment right. or just general society. You know, I think about, you know, his, his incredible Hollywood picture, uh, Sunset Boulevard, yes. where we get to see how Hollywood has treated one of its greatest stars and, uh, right. Gloria Swanson's character. Right. So it's not unusual for Wilder to uh, touch on uh, women's roles and, and and really be realistic about them. And I think uh, even if it's in and and I don't think we should underestimate. And I don't think we should underestimate. I mean, it is at this point. It is the late fifties. We are going into the sixties. I think people sure. were were more sophisticated by that point, mm -hmm. and I'm sure that. There were women in the audience who recognized that and saw that. I mean, I saw something um, some time ago. It was a, a film historian talking about Breakfast at Tiffany's. And yeah. he was talking about sort of the unsophistication of the audience and how no one in the audience knew she was a prostitute. And, and I spoke to someone who saw it when it, I spoke to an older person who saw it when it was in the theater and I said did you know she was a prostitute she said yes I knew and I thought you know I feel like we sometimes we we sophisticates of the 21st century sometimes you know underestimate the the sophistication of people yeah. you know of, yeah. of of bygone days and think oh they're all just sort of rubes or whatever but but they were aware of the world you know and certainly mm -hmm. women were aware of how they were treated well i think also they spoke to the vernacular of the time too there's always code words for uh for certain things 
given a, a certain time period. And, yes. And I think the viewers of, of time periods will understand that a little better. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned Breakfast at Tiffany's. I was just thinking about that. I've always thought of Breakfast at Tiffany's to be uh, sort of if you're turning the page on gender roles as far as being shown on film, I look at Breakfast at Tiffany's as being almost a linchpin in that. And that's just two years after this movie. That's yeah. 1961, I believe. Yeah. So well, you're right. We're getting close to turning the corner in terms of how women are depicted, certainly not how they're treated, but right. how they're depicted uh, on screen. And, right. uh, and so I think this is another, certainly another step. Uh, towards what we see in Breakfast at Tiffany. And, and briefly going back to casting choices, Anthony Perkins was up for the Jack Lemmon role too. Wow. And I think that would have been interesting. I'm not saying I love Jack Lemmon, but it would, to Anthony Perkins would have been an interesting choice. Uh, I could see the why they thought with so that. physically different. Yes. It's so I mean, wasn't Perkins like six foot tall or something like I, that? I don't know how tall he was, but he was certainly very, well, he was very slender. And he, slender people kind of often give the illusion of being very tall. You know, Paul Newman was like 5'7", but he, he kind of looked tall because he was so slender. But yes, I do think Anthony Perkins was, was taller. <laughs> well, he would go on to cross-dressing in a totally different way. Yes, later. <laughs> yes. It should have been like uh, Anthony Perkins and Farley Granger. <laughs> oh goodness! Wow. Uh, no. Well, I, I think that I think if we're moving on, and we're just talking about one year later, uh, Wilder makes the apartment. Yes. Right? Yes. Nineteen sixty. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that. We see a, another um, example of, of changing roles, changing roles for women, changing roles in the business world, uh, or, or at least looking at, uh, at what that really looks like in the apartment. Well, you know, yes, definitely. And I, the apartment is certainly the most, um, I feel it feels the most contemporary, even though, yes, technically it is chronologically the most the more recent of the films, it feels very modern. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's it's in New York. You can see New York, the building, the brownstone that he lives in. Um, it's just the characters, whereas in Some Like It Hot, the characters are, they're heightened. You know, they're, it's a bit more... Um, well, and it and it takes place much earlier. The setting of the story itself is, yes. you know, the thirties. So, but but yeah, and, and and the apartment. Isn't this something? The apartment is really pretty straightforward about the sex and the immorality, oh, yeah. or the the you know so, sort of supposed immorality that we're talking about uh, here in nineteen sixty. You know, it, it is calling a spade a spade, so to speak, and, right. and uh, it, it's not—it's not necessarily. Uh, it doesn't hide behind code words or uh, some making it sort of humorous. There's uh, there's something about Fred McMurray's character, which I think anybody who yes. watches Fred McMurray movies after they know him from you know my three sons is probably their mind just. Whoa. And he didn't want uh, to do the movie because of that. He didn't want to do it right. because he had actually just signed a contract with Disney 
to do those you know, Disney movies, and he didn't sure. want to do it. Those because ones he, we all know from growing up, right? right, right. Like the Shaggy Dog. and um, Right. And he, well, McMurray owed quite a bit to, uh, to Billy Wilder. Uh, writing that character in Double Indemnity. Well, and but, I think that's why he uh, did it because it was Billy Wilder. Sure. But he, but he, but he actually received a bunch of fan mail afterwards that was like very critical right. of him doing that. And so he basically vowed to never do such a dark character before, but uh, to do another dark character, you know, ever again. But so right. brief synopsis of the apartment: uh, uh, Jack Lemon's character, C.C. Baxter. Uh, owns is a bachelor, has his own apartment, and when the movie opens, he has been, we don't even know, maybe a year this has been going on, he gives his key to men who are higher up than him in the office, in the, the place where he works. It's like consolidated oil or something. Um, and and they use his his bachelor pad for their extramarital affairs and yeah. and Fred McMurray is the president of this company and and just when he thinks just when Jack Lemon thinks that it's all going to end he can finally stop doing this in comes Fred McMurray and says no you got now you got to let me use the use the apartment and what he learns is that he's having an extramarital affair with a woman that he actually likes, that Jack Lemmon's character actually likes. And that there is Shirley MacLaine, who... I, this is Shirley MacLaine at my favorite. I mean, this is at her best, in my personal opinion. Um, I, I just She's just heartbreaking in this movie. Um, but again, it's a very... Um, contemporary, modern view, mm -hmm. uh, representation of, 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 of women. You know, she's not, mm -hmm. she's not Marilyn Monroe. She's not a, she's, and she's not Garbo. She's not a sex kitten. She's a normal, right. regular woman who's yep. cute, has a decent job, you know, lives with her sister and, and brother-in-law, uh, is just a working girl. And, and, and Jack Lemmon's character is just, you know, working guy, working stiff. And, right. and again, it's not, it's a movie that in a way defies genre because it's not sure. a rom-com. It's not. No, there but are you have an element of rom-com because they do have, of all these films, the closest to a meet-cute. Yes. You know, it's, there's not a circumstance. Uh, they kind of have that the meat cute that we know today, uh, but that is about all right. of the rom com um, that you see in this film. And, and while we see him falling for her, she's not falling for him for like two thirds of the film. She has no interest in him. She likes him. She thinks he's a decent person, but. She's not in love with him, and I'm not even sure, and, you know, I'll be interested to see what you think. I'm not even sure that she's necessarily in love with him at the end of the movie. I think that she recognizes that he's a good person and wants yeah. to make it, wants to see if she can make it work, but... Well, yeah, and don't you, don't you think that 
uh, he is a good person. And that is, uh, you would think, oh, could be a good person. That's great. You're a good person. Anybody can be a good person. But she's had so much disappointment and seen so much of the bad yes. and so much of the negative. And, man, that makes him being a good person paramount. I mean, that is that's the best thing he could be to her at that and, time. And, and, and it's all, you know, it's perception because a case could be made that he's not the greatest guy. I mean, he does allow these, he enables these sure. extramarital affairs in his apartment just to get ahead, you know, in the hopes that he'll be promoted. And, and I think, I think uh, certainly that easily you can make a case for that. I think uh, that, and maybe this is the male in me watching this, yes. but, or, or this is, or, or, I'm not sure, but I think most people see that as he almost doesn't have a choice. Um, yes, he's enabling this. Could he have said no? Sure. Would he have lost his job? Most likely. Uh, well, he, I don't maybe, know that he would have know, lost his job. I just say, think he would have been not been promoted. Because it's not like, you know, it's not like he rose in the ranks that quickly as a result of doing it. But not being promoted to him would kind of be tantamount to losing a job because right, he didn't right. just hated what he did. Right. Um, but you're right. There, there is that sort of, uh, on the subcutaneous level, there is a, a, um, almost a misogynistic undertone to it with all the men, including C.C., uh, because of that, because there's this, this enabling and this sort of, you know, nudge in the, uh, you know, over the coffee and the break room saying, yeah, this is okay. This is all right. One of the, one of the best lines in the movie, I think, is really subtle and really quick. And, and, and it's when, um, Fred McMurray, uh, uh, it's a scene between Fred McMurray and, and Jack Lemon, And, He's talking about how, you know, Fred McMurray's like, you know, you, you, you take a woman out, all of a sudden she thinks you're going to leave your wife and marry her, and that's not fair. And Jack Lemon says, yeah, especially to your wife. <laughs> and, and it's sort of a dig, but McMurray's character is so, like, in narcissistic and in his own, you know, head and in his own circumstance that he doesn't even really catch it. He doesn't get yeah. it for what it is, but there's definitely, I, I know that line always makes me laugh, that it's the way he says it, because I kind of, and this is one of the things I love about the movie, I, I even as a woman, can relate to Jack Lemmon's character. Sure. I can definitely, I certainly in many ways, many more ways, relate to Fran's character, Fran Kubelik, um, which Shirley MacLaine portrays, but there are elements of Jack Lemmon's character that I that I relate to, and that being the sort of um, kind of smartass that that sort of drops lines here and there that people necessarily may not necessarily get, but make me chuckle, you know, um, and and just the sort of uh, feeling of powerlessness i mean he feels that he's yes. he sort of feels that you know like you're saying he was forced into doing this 
that he didn't really have a choice, that these, he was bullied. Yeah. He's, 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 he's capitalist. Isn't he? He's yeah, yes, yes. And he's bullied into this. And I, there are certainly um, things about that character that I can um, understand and appreciate and, and you know, relate to in certain ways, um, which I think is the, to a certain extent, I think is the genius of Jack Lemmon. But, yeah. he, you know. He, I, I think that he, he forces you, regardless of the circumstance, Lemon and, and, and Wilder's writing and directing to an extent forces you to empathize with this guy right. rather than judge him, rather than say, I like him or I don't like him. You just empathize with him. You feel sorry for him uh, and you want you know things to go well for him. And that, I believe, is, uh, is exactly, you know, it's a Wilder touch, but it's also that combination of Wilder and Lemon. They could just Boy, they can manipulate the heck out of the viewer. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I think, you, you, well, you mentioned the end of the film and how it leaves you with that sort of, that question. Uh, to me, it, it's, uh, it, it resonates similarly to the end of The Graduate, uh, yes. where you have these two that have yes. had this dramatic moment. And I just love the last shot of them on the bus looking at each other like, Oh gosh! Oh, we now? <laughs> yeah. What have we done? And and there's that sense here uh, at the end of the apartment as well. Yes, um, I think uh, the end of the apartment is maybe a little sweeter uh, because Jack Lemon is so you know, and it is so just so happy that she's there. But yeah. But at the same time, well, I think we empathize we empathize more with Jack Lemon's character than we do with. Dustin Hoffman's character. I think yes. we, most of us would like to smack him upside the head <laughs> yes. at some point. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and yet you still want him to end up with Catherine Ross, or at least, of at course. the very least, at the very least, you don't want her to end up with that guy, <laughs> with the right. other guy. Right. Even if she doesn't end right. up with Dustin's character, you don't want her to end up with that guy. Um, right. And, and I think that's why people feel good about the end of that film. But at any rate, we get back to the yeah, apartment. But I think, no, I think there is a connection. And, and it's interesting because in the, the apartment, it's the reversed in that the woman is running to him. Yeah. Uh, at the end, it sort of reminds you of, uh, again, it's an interesting rom-com thing, but it reminds you of when Harry met Sally and he's running through the streets of New York at New Year's Eve to go find her. Um, and this again is also New Year's Eve uh, in the what? apartment, New Year's Eve, and she's running to, to, to see him. Um, so it's a New Year's Eve movie. It's a New Year's <laughs> Eve movie, definitely. Uh, but it's, it's I, 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 it was something that stood out to me this time because I feel like every other time that I've watched it, I sort of just, felt like, oh, now they're going to be together and they're happy and this is a wonderful ending. But this time, I thought, I don't know. I'm not saying that she doesn't like him. I think she likes him a lot. And I think she really appreciates um, how he helped her. But, but you know, there's, you never get this sense from her that she's fallen madly in love with him. That just doesn't right. really come come across um yeah you know i mean well they, i think there's a little bit of with the claim of that because uh, she plays a character who 
she's been burned, and she so she's gonna kind of play things close to the vest a little bit, and uh, and and maybe that's that woman that and Shirley McLean certainly did a ton uh, for for women in Hollywood and how they were portrayed and, and some of the roles she took on. Maybe this was the start of that with you know her, um, you know, not being the hapless Maureen O'Sullivan. In the shop around the corner, who right. took the took the grief and went, oh, okay, it's all right. right. And she certainly wasn't. She certainly wasn't Sugar, who always gets the fuzzy end of the lollipop and just kind of shrugs her shoulders. Right, right. Uh, she was she was a woman of substance. Yes, depth. Uh, she and was that's complex. what I think that that makes her unique. And I and and I feel like I even feel like the other women. Um, I feel like what happens often in movies is there's a female character, modern movies, there's a female character that's strong, you know, she's like the one we're supposed to be rooting for, but then the other women in the movie are sort of, you know, two-dimensional, just sort of background fillers. But I feel like in the apartment, even the women who are not the lead characters, who are sort of... um, not extras, but, you know, more smaller roles or supporting characters, they feel like they're complex people as well. You know, uh, the, 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 the secretary who calls, his wife, calls and has lunch with the wife, you know, yeah. you, you see a little yeah. bit of her. She's not an idiot. She's not. She knows what's going on. She's been burned by this guy, too. And she's not going to take it anymore. You know, yeah, this is almost this film is almost a precursor to nine to five. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. I mean, it, it, it's that same business environment where the women are fed up with, you know, the harassment and just how they're treated. Uh, and certainly, what was nine to five was in the eighties. Right. So uh, I think nineteen eighty. So twenty years later. Yes. Twenty years later, women are still telling the same story. And twenty years uh, after and, that, I mean, you know. And twenty years <laughs> after that, and twenty years after that, here yeah. we sit. Yeah. You know, uh, and finally, finally, there's at least some momentum for. Uh, not just the stories that are, are told about women or the stories that women tell, uh, but the roles that women play in Hollywood. And, and uh, right, I and then you get an exciting, and then you get Glenn Close in the wife, sign. you know, and then you get Glenn yeah. Close in the wife, and 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 you know, giving speeches about at the Golden Globes about you know you can have a family, but you have to have your own life. You have to have things for yourself as well. Your yeah. life can't. Yep. Go, you know, be be just surround, go around your husband or your kids, right? Uh, but you know, a little trivia: the apartment was actually the last black and white movie to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards before The Artist. Well, Schindler's List before The Artist. Yeah, but there's color in Schindler's List. The girl in the Oh, that's true. First, completely black. Completely black and white. Yeah, Uh, sure. sure. Wow, how about that? Isn't that funny? Uh, uh, From the apartment to the artist. It's almost as if, you know, Hollywood embraced the 60s as here we go. Just like, you know, America as a culture did said, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've been this way for a long time. 
but we're going to change, baby. And Bob Dylan put away his acoustic and got on an electric guitar. Yes, and, yes. And, you know, I mean, it was like, these are the types of things that happened uh, going into the 60s. So, uh, and what I love is that while Wilder's career started to wind down after this, uh, he still, you know, made films. And uh, I think one of the reasons he maybe didn't have as much success after the apartment is that there was a uh, sort of a countercultural movement going on in the country. And his subtlety and his um, dealing with some of these, you know, especially sexual issues or, or, or sexual roles and things like that. Uh, just, I mean, people were coming out and, and you know, saying things. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, yeah. Uh, and his little soft touch wasn't as relevant anymore. And, and, and I think that he really, I happen to love black and white, but I feel like he really, um, you know, Marilyn Monroe wanted Some Like It Hot to be shot in color. It was actually in her contract yeah. that all her movies be in color. And he had to convince her that it had to be in black and white because because the makeup that they put on on, on the boys, like made, oh, it would have been clownish. That they would have looked like they may, actually made their faces look green if it was shot in color. Oh my gosh! <laughs> like they looked, they really did look like the Joker, you know. If, oh my goodness! I can only imagine. Yeah. Uh, and so it yeah. had to be shot in black and white because of the makeup, but. Um, I think it, I, I, I just feel like Billy Wilder certainly was more comfortable and excelled more in that 40s, 50s, black and white mm -hmm. film look, even. Um, yeah. You know, well, as opposed to the 60s I and the color and all of that. I think on the flip side of the coin with you know, all the changes that started to happen in the 60s, um, while I think film changed a lot, and there were certainly, the 70s had was a great decade for film. Yes. Uh, and there have always been great films. But I think, maybe this is the old cynic in me, but I feel like the artistry behind films began to die. Uh, and, well, it and became, that, it shifted into more spectacle, like Jaws and yeah, Star Wars. That's it exactly became, right. The movies and got bigger in what, a way. Bigger, and it's what can we do with these new uh, effects? What can we do? And I'm not just talking about special effects. I'm talking about, you know, what was wonderful about Citizen Kane is that, listen, well, some holes in the sound stage so he can get different angles. Right, So now, right. we're, you know, cameras are different and... And so it's like, it's like necessity artistry, was the mother of invention. <laughs> exactly. And so, and so some of the, 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 just the organic artistry of filmmaking, I think went away, but it, it went away, you know, in, we can't, you know, mourn that because it had to go away. Times changed yeah. and Hollywood shifted and great movies are still being made. I, I'm not one of these that say, well, no, no good movies have been made after you know, 1960 or anything right, like that. Right, right. Um, uh, there's certainly, and artistry finds its way in other ways. Yes, um, yes. But the commercial element of Hollywood certainly has also affected, uh, affected how that's gone. But, you know, Hollywood is Hollywood and we still go to movies and we still fork out a lot of money and we still 
fall in love with characters and stories and and uh, and, and, and also laugh, you know laugh, we cry and <laughs> yeah and and but also the other you know tv radio i mean other media formats affect film as well and so in the you know 30 like 30s to 50s which when these movies were made you go from you know radio to television and mm -hmm. and by the 60s you got you know what starts happening you get into cinemascope you get into um you know Tadeo and the and the like yeah. looks the look of South Pacific and that because they're they're freaking out saying oh no one's gonna come to the movies because they have TVs now uh, and now it's yeah. no one's gonna go to the movies because we have the internet now I think everyone right. is gonna always people are always gonna go to the movies now they're always gonna go to the movies now, and the great thing the great thing about Netflix and all these other formats to me, is we, you know, for a long time, there was just a handful of people that really got to tell the stories uh, and, and, and make the art in Hollywood. This just makes it, we get so many more voices, we get so many more stories from yes. so many different uh, places that yes. I think that, yes, does it mean we have to sift through some more garbage? Yeah, probably, but I'll sift through garbage to find a gem. And there are lots yes. of gems out there from places that we never would have had them before. And it, and it also provides an opportunity for even established directors. I mean, I'm thinking of um, Quaron's Roma. You know, that may not have... There's a reason why, Net, sure. why he did that with Netflix and not, you know, Warner Brothers or whatever. I mean, it, he, right. even established directors are doing things uh, on... I guess you could call a smaller platform or, you know, uh, right. that will be. Now, I know that Roma has been, has since been released in theaters, select cities mm -hmm. or whatever. But, you know, and this is with every new wave, there's always an argument of what's, you know, what direction we're going to go. And uh, I'd be interested to see what you think of this. Steven Spielberg had a, uh, said something last uh, few months ago, maybe a year ago, about how um, movies on like Netflix and Amazon Prime shouldn't be up for Oscars because it was like it's like his uh, his feeling is a movie is a movie because it's in a movie theater, and if it's not played in a movie theater, it should not be considered worthy for you know considered for an for an Oscar. Sure. I, yeah, you know. I think that's a kind of a, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I absolutely. There, there's part of me that says I agree with you 100%, but that's the, you know, that's the old-fashioned part of me. But there's a bigger part of me that says um, as much as I love the pageantry and love the Oscars, it's art. And the concept of, a, of an award show for art to me is you know ludicrous yes it's all subjective it's a little ludicrous how can you say that one person's better than another it's just uh, I think we, we do a disservice to the art the art form of cinema 
when we when we make that the ultimate achievement. But uh, since they've been around since 1929 or whatever, it's they're clearly not going anywhere. It is what you know. This is <laughs> right, right. This is the way it is. And so, do you think that uh, a, a movie that is only on Amazon or Netflix should not qualify for the Academy Awards? I think that if it doesn't get a release, it should not. I think those because. I, I, because I do think those uh, movies and those and, and things that are released on that platform are getting attention and they are eligible for Emmys, uh, which is, if you think about it, a small format, small screen format. Well, the movies like, aren't, though. Yeah. Like, Roma is not going to be up for a Emmy. You know, I think that, that both, those, uh, both the Academy... Um, uh, TV and Academy of Film are going to have to take a good long look at this because it's another example of time changing. Yeah. And uh, I mean, and maybe it's a new category. It. Maybe it's maybe it's yeah. internet. You know, best best movie online, best best yeah. you know right? best streaming On a streaming format, best best film like of, a, yeah. of a streaming format. I mean, maybe they sure. just create a new category. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, I think that I think there are some people that probably freaked out when uh, films, you know, majority of films went to filming digitally as opposed to with film. Um, you know, I think there were probably people who said, "Ah, oh, it's not on film. It's not a movie. Right, it's not, right, you know, right. it's not a film. Right? How can we have these digital, you know, digital?" I was uh, actually, formats? I was actually, you know, I'm a. I'm a photographer in my other life, and I was talking with uh, an older man, and he, in in as nice a way as he could, basically said I wasn't a real photographer because I use a digital camera because I wasn't shooting <laughs> on. Yeah, I don't have a dark room, <laughs> and I don't shoot on Kodachrome anymore. Yeah. I mean, well, you and know- I and I thought well. Okay, that's 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 one point of view. Well, I will share this little anecdote with you, uh, and maybe this will will help us wrap things up. The last film that the last project I worked on when I lived in in Hollywood and worked in the industry uh, was an independent film that we that we shot digitally, and this would have been uh, ninety nine two thousand, right. right around the turn of the century. Right. Uh, Which and is so, so weird to say, turn of the century. Right. <laughs> I still think you know, of 1900. Twenty years ago. I still think of yeah, 1900 right? years the ago. Century. Gosh. Uh, well, you know, this is prior to the to digital format being sort of embraced. Uh, we filmed it on, on a digital format, and we actually had a discussion uh, as we. This was the film that was going to do the festival circuit and did do the festival circuit. Right. Um, there was actually a discussion on, hey, should we spend the, well, I don't remember what it was, maybe fifty, dollars $100,000 to get this onto film, to transpose this <laughs> onto film. Yeah, uh, they're not because, having that discussion you know, now. Because we wanted, it, we wanted it to be taken seriously, and, uh, and we weren't, you know, obviously we filmed it on digital for purely... Uh, financial reasons right um and it looks fine yeah it looked like if we watched it today we wouldn't think anything of it right but 
uh, it, we were still at a point where festivals and, and distributors were like, well, it's not on film. What am I going to do with this? Right. Well, you know, there's a great, well, there's a great it, it documentary. 20 years. Yeah. No, yeah. there's a great documentary called Side by Side that uh, Keanu Reeves did. And it talks mm-hmm. about um, film versus digital and, and shooting on film versus shooting on digital and the look and all of that. Um, but I just wanted to briefly get back, jump to Some Like It Hot because I didn't mention George Raft. And George oh, Raft yeah. is wonderful in this movie. Um, he, uh, you know, was known as a gangster, uh, someone who portrayed gangsters and had portrayed uh, Scarface, I think it was, I believe it was Scarface in a movie where he, you know, flipped the coin, flipped the quarter up and yeah. down, and he sort of yeah. mocks that. There's a scene in Some Like It Hot where some guy is flipping a quarter, and he's like, where'd you learn that cheap trick? But <laughs> <laughs> isn't, isn't that wilder right there to take someone like George Raft, who played these heavies, and and get a performance out of him that is playing the same part but in a comedic fashion. Yes. Uh, it's very similar to what, you know, he got Gloria Swanson to play. Think of this. He got Gloria Swanson to play this this tragic former silent film star whose time has passed her. Guess what? That was Gloria Swanson. Right, right. How on earth? I mean, that's Wilder. He was able to get this woman. He was very know, meta. He was definitely life. very meta in that sense. And he does it in the apartment. There's a line that, again, he has a lot of lines that almost, I don't want to say throw away, but they're sort of like a, you know, sneeze and miss type of line. But they're so, sure. you know, one of them is two sort of supporting characters who are talking and they're clearly hung over and, and CC Baxter hasn't been to work in a couple of days. And, um, they make a reference to the lost weekend. It was a lost weekend. Well, that's yeah, a Billy yeah. Wilder film, the lost yeah. weekend, <laughs> you know, and he, and he does that a couple of times. I can't remember the other movies, but he does it a couple of times where he references his own movies, uh, in ways that work in the film, but yeah. it's 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 you know hilarious. Even the um, the sort of floozy character that that the guy brings back to Baxter's apartment, who's very much yeah. Marilyn Monroe. That was not an accident. Sure. That was right. he had just finished doing it, some like it hot. Marilyn Monroe was sort of you know the 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 sort of no, became known as a horror as yeah. far as he was concerned working on that film. And so he casts this woman as a, as a Marilyn Monroe type who's clearly a ditz, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, isn't Woody Allen is famous for breaking the fourth wall in a, in a you know, really direct fashion. And, and I think the Marx Brothers did it a little bit too. But that was Wilder breaking the fourth wall. Yes, that was Wilder turning, and and this is a, a phrase I read somewhere um, about Wilder. He gives you that wink. That's Wilder winking at you, saying, yes. "I know, you know, we all know." Right. Have fun with it. Right, <laughs> right. And you know, uh, Marilyn Monroe actually told Wilder after the fact that she had wanted to play that the Shirley MacLaine character. 
sure. she had wanted that character. That would have been really different. It would have been really different, but I think she could have done it. I think it would, it would definitely would have been different. But I think that, and I feel like Shirley MacLaine was perfect because because she wasn't that sex pot, that she was just a normal she was a, woman. She an anti-Monroe. Yeah. Yes. But I think, I feel like Marilyn had the, I feel like she had the pathos, you know, to, yeah. to do it. I oh, feel yeah. like she felt like that character. Even if she didn't look like uh, Shirley MacLaine, you know, she felt like a Fran Kubelik. You know, she yeah. she she did always get the fuzzy end of the stick, and she didn't shrug it off the way that Sugar did. You know, I think she probably her internal life was probably more like Fran's than Sugar's. You know, yeah. Um, and so I could see why she would want to do the role and feel like she could do the role, and I could definitely see why he wouldn't want her for that role. You know, I, right. I, I, I could see I could see both sides of it. But so do you have any closing last words about either of these movies? You know, I think that, uh, like I said, you know, when I taught these films uh, and I've taught, I think, all of these films. Did the kids uh, maybe, like them? I don't know if I, uh, I, they were juniors, usually juniors and seniors. Um, but when I taught these, there was an inevitable groan of oh, black and white film. Right. But to me, but to me, um, is very much like a, a process I went through with paintings. I could look at a painting and say, oh, that's a really nice painting. But when I took time to learn about the context of the painting, the artist who did it and their story, you look at the painting in a totally different way. Right. You have a different appreciation. And, and so loved... Uh, being able to share that and watching students watch films that they would never have watched of their own volition right. and hearing them laugh. You know, one of my highlights of every year was when I showed them uh, Modern Times with Chaplin, yes. which was uh, essentially his last silent picture, even though there's a couple moments of sound. Right. Uh, when we started, I tell them to watch a silent picture you know, teenage eyeballs roll back into their heads, right. but they are laughing hysterically and loving it, and they can talk about these films after it. I don't know if if in the history of the Fast and Furious franchise, oh, kids have ever sat down in the coffee shop afterwards to discuss the film right. uh, that they had seen. But uh, that doesn't mean there's not a place for those movies. They sure, certainly make enough money. Mm. But uh, I, you know, I just I like to encourage people to to, to learn uh, and to watch films and look at art and ingest everything that that we take in as consumers in this world with a critical eye and and uh, and that makes me happy. It made me happy as a teacher. It makes me happy as a person. And did they have a favorite film? Did they like Some Like It Hot or Ninochka? And- um. Some Like It Hot was very popular. Um, Modern Times is extremely popular. Interesting. I, I also had some some newer films. Uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape was always a favorite. Oh, that's definitely uh, one of my the, favorites. With, oh, it's, it's, yeah. Um, and uh, and and interestingly enough, one of the last films I showed them uh, because I knew, especially for the juniors. They were taking U.S. history, and they were into the 60s and into studying the Cold War. 
in order to, uh, uh, we were doing a, a genre study of, of black humor, black comedy. Oh, please tell me it was Doc- Strange Love. I showed them Dr. Strange Love. Yes. Uh, yes. And they, uh, especially when, you know, we really look at what makes black comedy, black comedy, which is a podcast for another day. Yes. Uh, they really laugh and they, they can really appreciate that. Film. And that stuff, that so was it, a movie that, you know, uh, that's yet another movie where you see something every see something new every time you see it. But that's definitely for yeah. another podcast. I could talk three hours <laughs> on that movie. I love that movie. Um, but I want to thank you, Nate, for a wonderful conversation. This has been fabulous. Uh, you and I can talk film for hours on end. And, uh, yes, we can. <laughs> and I'm happy to do it. Yes. Well, I'm going to ask you back just so you know. Wonderful. Thanks, Nate. Good evening. Thank you for listening to The Real Woman Podcast. Please join me next week when my guest will be filmmaker James Spooner as we talk about his documentary, Afropunk. (laughs) 